activates the amygdala, it's something in our brain that triggers or detects fear. And he says that the light of the firework, it, it triggers that. It's, so it's stimulating this like fear response. But then he says that when we hear the boom, our perception goes back to, to uh, something that's familiar. So since we know it's a firework, the, the point of knowing that is when the boom hits. So th at that point, it releases dopamine in our brain and makes us enjoy fireworks. So it's like a two-part thing. So I know you didn't ask for that this morning, but I, I wanted to give it to you and, you know, do with that what you will. The reason I shared that is because now, now you know that looking at fireworks is a little bit more interesting than you thought it was, okay? That's why I shared it with you. Well, I have a, I have a, a simple goal for this morning, very simple, and it's to argue that looking at Jesus is much more profound than we think it is. Looking at Jesus is much more profound than we think it is. When you watch fireworks, there's apparently an internal chemical reaction that is why we enjoy it. And what Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, specifically in verse 18, is that when we look at and when we behold Christ, there's an internal spiritual reaction that happens, that takes place. Looking at Jesus is much more profound than we think it is. That's my goal this morning, is to show you that. Now, we need to understand some context of to what's going on. We're kind of parachuting into this passage this morning. So in chapter 3 of 2 of Corinthians, Paul is starting to defend his ministry as an apostle. There are these bozo apostles, who Paul called super apostles later on, and they kind of strolled into town, and they were trying to say that, you know, we're legit, Paul's not, you shouldn't trust Paul, and, and blah, blah, blah. And then something interesting is that they tried to show that they were legit by having these letters of recommendation or letters of commendation that they would put forth and, and try to say that, you know, Paul is illegitimate because he didn't have any of these. And so what Paul does is he starts to defend his ministry. And what he's doing is he starts to shine light on the new covenant. And what he wants to do is say, hey, the new covenant is so awesome. It's so glorious. The gospel is so amazing. And because I hold it in such high regard, why would you question my integrity? That's what Paul is trying to do here. And so he speaks first directly to that letter of recommendation. And he, and he says, listen, guys, I was here. I planted the church. You are the letter of recommendation, but not written on a tablet of stone. He says, you're written. The Holy Spirit has written it on your heart. And so he starts to talk about the new covenant of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so I'll pause and I'll say this. There's two reasons this morning that I want to share for why looking at Jesus is much more profound than we think it is. And the first reason is because of the new covenant. See, the old covenant, Paul says, came with glory. But the new covenant comes with much more glory, glory that surpasses it. Paul starts to reference and, and kind of go back to Exodus 32 through 34. And I'll just recount the story. God leads Israel out of Egypt. He establishes his conditional covenant with them. If they obey God, God blesses them. If they disobey, God curses them. Israel promises to obey God. And so Moses goes back up the mountain to meet with God, get the Ten Commandments. And not too long after he's gone, Israel starts to, you know, make a golden calf. They get naked. They have a weird dance party around it. It's super weird. It happens really fast. It's odd. God sees it happening. And God says, you know what? 
They're dead meat. I'm going to destroy them. They're done. Because they just broke my commandment. They just broke the covenant. And then Moses intercedes. And he says, God, don't do that, please. And then it says that God changed his mind. And then he says something interesting. He says he's no longer going to be in their midst. Because if God was in their midst, because of their disobedience, he would consume them. And so what happens is Moses, he comes back down off the mountain. And he pitches a tent outside of the camp. Not in their midst anymore, outside of the camp. And what happens in the, in the tent of meeting is what it's called, is that the Lord came down in a cloud and a pillar of smoke and would meet with Moses, and we'd, he would meet, meet with Moses face to face. And then Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. And so God agrees to do it. Moses goes back up the mountain, and God passes by, and then Moses comes back down. But when Moses comes back down off the mountain, something really interesting is happening that wasn't happening before. His face was glowing. His face was lighting up. You know, our bodies actually emanate light, but we just can't see it. And some scholars believe that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the reason why they didn't realize they were naked and ashamed is because they were emanating the glory of God's presence. But when they sinned, the light went out. And so this is happening to Moses. He's in the presence of God. His face is shining. And then he walks down the mountain. The old covenant came with a lot of glory. It was pretty intense. There was a lot of stuff that happened. And that's what Paul is saying. It was glorious. It was special. But the new covenant in Jesus is much more glorious. So he compares, he contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant, and he does that all in chapter 3. And then we get to verse 9, and it says this, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. And then Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. The gospel gives Paul hope. It it makes him bold, is what he's saying. And then he says in verse 13, And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. And so when Moses came down off the mountain, his face was glowing. It freaked Israel out. That's what it says. And so Moses put a veil over his face. And then Paul says something interesting here. He says he put the veil over his face so that they wouldn't gaze intently at what was fading away. You see, the glory on Moses' face was fading because it represented the transitory nature of the Old Covenant. It was just transitional. It wasn't permanent. And so the veil was over his face to hide the impermanence of the Old Covenant. And then Paul takes it to a spiritual level and he says this in verse 14, but their minds were hardened talking about Israel. For until this day, at the, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. See, the veil represents Israel's history of having a hard heart towards God. 
And that's happening today still. But when someone turns to the Lord, what Paul says is that the veil is removed and they're freed from the law. He says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. Jesus said it this way, If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The Spirit of God is the agent who frees us when we look to Christ in faith. There's a lot of talk about freedom these days. Of course, this week. What, what is freedom? What is freedom? True freedom, I think, has two parts. Number one is being freed from something. Spiritually, it's being freed from the slavery to sin and our own performance and our own works. But what Paul has in mind is more of a freedom towards something. Not just a freedom from, but a freedom to something. We are freed in order to behold the face of Christ. That's what Paul says. He says in a few verses later, he says, hey, you know that veil that's over Israel? Guess what? It's, it's applying to everybody. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so when we trust Christ, Paul says the veil is removed. The spiritual blinders are taken off. We can now see face to face the glory of Christ. Moses, the only person to experience that in a physical sense with the veil off when they were in the wilderness. But now we all, when we turn to the Lord, have an unveiled face and we can see him. It's true of everyone who's trusted in Jesus. You have an unveiled face to behold the glory of the Lord. Looking at Jesus is so much more profound than we think it is. Number one, because of the new covenant. Number two, because it's simple and it's transformative. It's simple and it's transformative. When I go to a restaurant and there's 44,000 menu items on there, it's just like debilitating. I don't know if anybody else is in the same boat as me, but I'm like, I'm going there and I've never been there before. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And I go to the person next to me, what's good here? <laughs> you know, or you ask the person who you're, you know, talking to, what's your favorite, you know, meal or whatever. And then you get that meal. And then after, after you've gotten it and it's like good, you go back there again. I don't usually try anything else. I just kind of stick with it. Don't want to be disappointed. Don't want to waste a meal, waste money. I guess I'm the only one that feels that way. But we all love simplicity. In verse 18, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is the simplest one-verse explanation of the Christian life that you'll find in Scripture. It boils down the Christian life to one activity, to one thing, looking at Jesus, beholding Jesus. That's it. It's that simple. It's simple and it's transformative. Let's focus on the transformation part of it for a second. He says, we all with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So Paul is saying that when we look at Jesus, we're transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. So the more you look at Jesus, the more you'll look like Jesus. The more you behold Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. How simple is that? How transformative is that? 
It's our destiny, Paul says later in Romans. It's our destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that happens in two ways, two aspects to that. Number one is the physical aspect. We know this, but Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says this. Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Anybody looking forward to that day? Yeah. One day our body is going to be instantly transformed. We'll be fit to be in God's presence. We'll have a body compatible for the presence of God. That's why Moses couldn't see God's full physical presence. He would be burnt toast. He would die. We would too. But one day our body will be transformed. But Paul's not highlighting that aspect of transformation. He's highlighting a different aspect He's talking not about external transformation here. He's talking about the internal transformation, which is actually the reverse order of what happened to Moses, if you remember. Moses' physical appearance changed as he was beholding the glory of God, but then it faded away. For us, the internal transformation that takes place is our character is conformed to Christ's character. That's what's happening on the inside when we behold Christ. We go from one character quality, one degree of glory, to another. So with Moses, he beholds the glory, physically changed, fades away. We behold his glory, internally changed, and it's ever-increasing. It's ever-increasing until we meet that other aspect in the physical sense. I think you'll probably agree with me that it seems like the Lord, you know, in our lives, we go through seasons where the Lord is trying to work on a certain character quality, you know, if we have kids, it's like, man, he's really highlighting patience in my life, you know, or if you're at work and you have, you know, people at work who are really hard to work with and maybe there's patience, you know, there's patience you have to exercise there. Maybe it's joy. God wants to work in you joy, love, selflessness. Whatever the season, Paul says, if you look at Christ, if you're looking at Christ, then you'll be more like Christ. You look at Christ, you'll be more like Christ. Looking at Jesus is much more profound than we think it is because of how simple and transformative it is. Now, I want to focus in on the simplicity of it. You know, if you, want, if you want permanent eye damage, and I'm not recommending that you would do this or want this, but if you want permanent eye damage, you don't have to do 10,000 push-ups. You don't have to do 10,000 jumping jacks. If you want permanent eye damage, it's actually pretty simple. Go outside, especially today. Look up at the sun. Stare at it long enough, you get permanent eye damage. Now, again, I'm not recommending that you guys do that. You probably should not do that. But that's how simple it is to be changed by the sun. Spiritual growth really is this simple. The more we stare at the sun, S-O-N, the more we're changed. That's how simple it is. That's what changes us. Now, I know that there's commands in Scripture. We should obey the Lord. But that comes from a place of inner transformation when we look at Christ, and that transformation leads to our obedience. It starts on the inside. It doesn't start on the outside. You know, there's a tendency 
and a mentality in some churches today to take the route of whipping us into shape by using guilt and, and fear tactics to lead us into obedience. Hey, if you're not here at church every single time the doors are open, if you don't serve the Lord in every area with every waking moment outside of family and stuff, then you're probably not that much in love with Jesus. Probably not. If you struggle with the same sin that you did before Jesus for the thousandth time, are you a Christian? Are you saved? Fear. Guilt. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, just a few chapters later. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Don't fall for the guilt trip-based obedience. Don't fall for the fear-based obedience, the unhealthy fear, the ungodly fear. God wants us to serve and love him out of a place of assurance and simplicity. That's what he wants. And so when it comes to the simplicity of looking at Christ, I want to ask and answer two questions, okay? What does it mean to behold Christ and how do we do it? What does it mean and how do we do it? What does it mean to behold Christ? Paul says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Beholding carries the, this idea of I'm stopping to stare at something. You know, if you're driving in a car and there's a crash, what do we all do? It gets a little dangerous for us because we're like, what's going on there? You know, we're trying to figure out what's happening. If there's a fire, we're kind of stopping, slowing down, staring at it. That's the idea. We stop, we stare at Christ. We're intentionally fixing our gaze on Jesus. And that means that we have to make time for that. We have to make time to intentionally gaze at Christ. But Paul says, hey, you're intentionally fixing your gaze on him, but listen, it's only as in a mirror. Back then, mirrors weren't like clear glass mirrors that we have today. They were like polished steel, so it was very faint. And so it's the idea that, again, that other side of transformation, when we see Jesus, that's when we'll fully see him. Now we're staring as in a mirror. It's dim. But then he says the object of our gaze is the Lord. But he doesn't just say the Lord. He says the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. What is glory? It's what gives a thing weight. It's what gives a thing its awesomeness. It's majesty. That's what glory is. And what's, so what's the glory of the Lord that we're to stare at? Remember back, we can't see God's glory physically, right? Well, if our, if our inner character is being conformed as we look at God's glory, then it must mean that the glory of the Lord we're looking at is the glory of his character, the glory of who God is, his manifest attributes. That's exactly what we see happen to Moses. Let's read about it. Then Moses said, I pray to you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then he says in the next chapter, the Lord descended in a cloud 
and he stood there with him as he called in the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So what's happening? Moses asks to see the glory of God, but he has a, a limited view of the physical glory of God. But he does experience the manifestation of God's character and his attributes. The goodness of God passed by him. God proclaims the compassion, the graciousness, the patience, the love, the truthfulness, forgiveness. That's what he proclaims to him. God is much more concerned with us knowing what he's like than what he looks like. And that's what we see happen with Moses. So the glory of the Lord that we're called to stop and stare at is the manifestation of his attributes, of his character. And then that brings us to the next question. How do we do that? How do we see his character? How do we behold that glory? How do we stare at it? Well, just like Moses, God proclaimed it to him. He spoke his word to him. We primarily see the manifest character of the glory of God in the word of God. That's where it's revealed. Paul says this a few verses later. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The knowledge. We see the glory of the Lord's character by looking at how he's revealed in his word. The knowledge of his glory is found in scripture. Paul said that he considered everything as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. The author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Peter, he wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Romans chapter 12 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We renew our mind with the word and being transformed. There is the same word here in 2 Corinthians. It's the same word when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. When we behold the glory of the Lord in his word, we're transformed into his image. When we look at Christ, so let me ask you, have you seen his compassionate glory on display when you read about him healing the leper? Have you seen the glory of his humility on display when he washes his disciples' feet? Have you seen the glory of his kindness when he restores one of his friends who denied him three times? Have you seen the glory of his love on display as he lays down his life on the cross for his enemies? Have you seen the glory of his power and his justice when he returns on the white horse? Have you seen the glory of the Lord in the word of the Lord? You know, I think that the glory of the Lord shines brightest when it's shining on his grace and his love. What strikes me about the story of Moses is that God doesn't say, I'll let my judgment and my wrath and my vengeance pass before you. Those are a part of God's attributes, but he says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. That's what God wants to reveal to us, his goodness, his love. 
his compassion, his kindness. So I'm telling you this morning that you see the goodness of God most clearly in the word of God when you read about the Son of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.15 and 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ is who we see in the mirror because he is the image of the invisible God. And as we gaze at the image of Christ, that image reflects onto us like it did Moses, and it transforms us. So how do we see him? How do we, how do we behold him? How do we see that image? We look to the written word so we can behold the incarnate word. And when you see more of him, Paul says you'll be made more like him. Doesn't the book of Proverbs say, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You become what you think about. There's an old hymn that's called, Take Time to Be Holy. And I'm going to change the first line, but I want to share it with you. I'm going to change it to, Take Time to Behold Him. It says this, Take time to behold Him. Speak often with thy Lord. Abide in Him always and feed on His word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing His blessing to seek. Take time to behold Him. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be. Thy friends in thy conduct, his likeness shall see. Take time to behold him, let him be thy guide, and run not before him, whatever beside. In joy or in sorrow, still follow thy Lord, and looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to behold him, be calm in thy soul, each thought and each motive beneath his control. Thus led by his spirit to fountains of love, thou soon shalt be fitted for service above. So the question this morning, for all of us, how often do we take time to behold him? How often do we take time to look at him? Looking at Christ is much more profound than we think it is. And if we really believe that, we would take time to behold him. But the idols in our heart get in the way. The same word for Jesus being the image of the invisible God is the same word used for having a graven image, an idol. The idols crowd the space in our heart so that we won't see the glory of Christ. We don't take time to behold him because we're busy idolizing other things. Can we say this with the psalmist? One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Can we say that? I know we're all familiar with the recent story about the five people who died in the submersible recently. And what's crazy about that story to me isn't just, you know, that it wasn't 
certified and all those other things. What's crazy to me is the fact that these guys go through these, these great links and strides to see the glory of something that's dead and decaying at the bottom of the ocean. To see something that's a shell of itself. But oftentimes, our life is pursuing dead and decaying things that crowd out seeing the image of Christ. We pursue sports, we obsess over it. We know all these statistics, catching fish, whatever it might be. Those things are decaying. Moth and rust are going to eat them up. Not worth being obsessed over, but gazing at the glory of Christ is worth being obsessed over. Obsessed. Looking at Christ is much more glorious than we think it is. You may uh, remember a man named Stephen in the Bible. He was the first Christian who was martyred, and I would like to end by kind of going, looking at his story. It says in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen was full of grace and power. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Signs and wonders sounds like Jesus. That's pretty impressive. Verse 9 of chapter 6 says, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenius and Alexandrians and some of some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Sounds a lot like Jesus shutting people's mouths when they try to trap him. It says in verse 11, Then they secretly in- induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council, they put him forward, they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and the altar and the customs which Moses handed down to us. False accusations sounds a lot like Jesus. And then here's an interesting phrase. In verse 15, it says, And fixing their gaze on him. All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. That phrase, fixing their gaze, is the same phrase Paul uses a little bit earlier when he says that Israel was closed off via the veil of seeing the glory of God. The veil was put on so they wouldn't look intently or they wouldn't fix their gaze on the glory that was being faded. And then it goes on to say, well, Stephen, he responds with the big sermon. We're not going to look at that. But it goes on to say at the end of his sermon, now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's the same phrase of when they fixed their gaze at Stephen, Stephen fixed his gaze to the glory of God. What's interesting is that it says that 
Stephen was filled, was full of the Holy Spirit. And the one activity that the Holy Spirit infilled him to do was to look up, was to look up at the glory of God. He gazed into heaven, he looked up at the glory of God. And then the next thing that happened, in the midst of persecution and, and dying, Stephen utters some similar words. In verse 56, it says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's later Paul. They went on stoning Stephen as they called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Don't miss this. Stephen fixes his gaze on Jesus, and then he utters the same words as Jesus. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what's happening is that Stephen sees the glory of Jesus. And I believe in that moment he was transformed to be more like Jesus, which led him to uttering the same words as Jesus. What would have happened if he didn't look up? What would have happened? Would he have said those same words? Would he have been transformed into the same image of Christ and had the same heart that Christ had? Would Paul be writing this? It says that they laid their robes at the feet of a man named Saul, who's later Paul. Maybe as Paul is writing this, he's thinking back to when Stephen looks up at the glory of Christ and he hears the same words as Christ. But what, what happens in our life when we don't look up? When we don't look at the glory of Jesus and we don't take time to behold him? That's how simple it is. Looking at Jesus is much more profound than we think it is. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace, your love, your forgiveness, mercy. God, I pray that we would leave here encouraged and challenged to see and make time to behold your glory, your manifest character, so that we'll be more like you, so that we'll love you more, so that we'll love others more. Grant us a work of your Holy Spirit to see your glory. Focus our eyes on you. Help us to look at you. With your head bowed and your eyes closed just real fast, I want to just speak to anybody in the room who may not be a Christian, may not be a believer. Maybe you came in, you were with a buddy or a friend or some family, and you don't know Christ. And you're hearing about all this, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, and it's confusing, you don't really know what's going on. Well, it's because that's for the Christian. That's the Christian life. When you boil it down, it's about looking at Jesus. 
and looking at him over and over again. But I want to say this. The beginning of the Christian life, to be a Christian, to have a relationship with God, starts with one look at Jesus. The look of faith. Jesus says this to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's confused about some things. And Jesus says, hey, remember back to when Moses was in the wilderness with the children of Israel. People got bit by serpents. They're being sick. And he said, Moses, lift up this bronze serpent in the wilderness. And I'll tell you what, anybody who looks at the serpent, who's lifted up, will be healed. And then Jesus says, even so, when the Son of Man is lifted up, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That's, that's Jesus telling you just how simple it is to be saved. You glance up at the serpent. If you're an Israelite, boom, you're healed. One glance, one look, one look of faith, one look of receiving something. And Jesus says it's one look of faith. It's one look of trusting in that death on the cross for your sin. You believe. That's it. You believe and you receive. It's the same thing. When you trust Christ, you believe that he is the son of God who paid for your sins so you wouldn't have to and rose again from the dead. Jesus says, the person who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has passed from death to life. You hear, you believe, and in that moment is when you receive salvation. That's it. So I don't know if what the background is of everyone in this room. Maybe you came from an environment where it is that guilt-based obedience, where it is that fear tactic. Maybe you're questioning your salvation all the time. Just ran into a buddy the other day that I know has no idea if he's going to heaven. Because he doesn't know how simple it is. He's constantly looking at himself and his works. It's looking to Christ and believing he is who he says he is, he did what he said he did. So if you're here this morning, just believe. We're sinners, we're separated from God. Believe Jesus paid for your sin. He's the son of God, God in the flesh, and he rose again. In that moment, you have eternal life. You pass from death to life. You're taken from the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of his beloved son, and every single day from that point on, keep looking at Jesus and seeing his glory. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.